the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Space biology is our topic in episode 44. Indeed, what is space biology and why is it done? Craig Kundrot is the director of NASA's Biological and Physical Sciences Division. In January of 2021, he gave this explanation. Uh, Good morning, uh, good afternoon and good evening. Uh, My task is to provide you with a bit of background on NASA's space biology program. So, In NASA's Biological and Physical Sciences Division within the Science Mission Directorate, uh, we use the spaceflight environments to study biological and physical systems. We examine phenomena under extreme conditions to help us better understand how they function. So in the lunar environment, and on the lunar surface in particular, some of the most noteworthy aspects are the radiation and gravity uh, fields. So gravity is one-sixth the strength that it is on the Earth's surface, And the radiation environment is unique. It's basically the deep space uh, radiation environment, but added onto that, the lunar albedo radiation. So we use these extreme environments to better understand how systems function, and in the case of space biology, how animals, plants, and microbes uh, function differently in these environments. And we use this knowledge to both enable space exploration and to benefit life on Earth. So we have a twofold mission pioneer scientific discovery, and enable exploration. Now, space biology covers a very broad range of subject matter uh, that we study plants, animals, microbes, uh, cellular systems, do molecular analysis, and also do longitudinal studies looking at development, reproduction, and evolution. In general, our space biology program, in the first step, characterizes how organisms respond to the spaceflight environment. Then secondly, given those responses, it teases out the mechanisms in play. This usually requires the development of new technology to enable the experiments. And once they're done, we're big proponents of capturing the data in an open science format for use uh, around the world. So GeneLab is our premier omics database 
And we also have a life science data archive that it contains additional data and biospecimens. We use all this information to enable exploration, as I said, but also to benefit life on Earth. You may well think that astrobiology would be concerned with life amongst the stars. But it is much, much closer to home. Lindsay Hayes is Deputy Program Scientist at the Astrobiology Program at the Planetary Science Division at NASA Headquarters. Astrobiology is one of the agency's priorities. It's a really important thing. Um, I'm really going to be focusing on the science in astrobiology and some of the, the topics and the research that we do and how that might be of interest to people who think a little bit more about the moon or and or a little bit about space biology. I'd like to start off by talking about how the idea of astrobiology and the idea of sort of understanding the history of life on this earth, astrobiology, you know, both stars through life, everything that starts with the origins of stars and, and all of the um, elements and all of the things that go into making stars and then planetary systems and then uh, planets and habitable environments on planets and then life and all of that, that whole continuum is what we consider covered in astrobiology. And this, of course, is a question that has had, uh, that we've been thinking about for a very, very long time. So I like using this quote from the Greek school of atomism, uh, to consider the earth as the only populated world in an infinite space is as absurd as to assert that an entire field is sown with millet, only one grain will grow. And really astrobiology seeks to understand, you know, where are the other grains? How would we find them? That sort of thing. When it comes to astrobiology at NASA, um, astrobiology has sort of been part of the NASA mission since about 1963, so relatively early in NASA's history. And astrobiology at NASA, as we think about it today, um, is the study of life in the context of the universe. And we focus on three fundamental questions. And those are, how does life begin? How does life and a biosphere evolve? And is there life elsewhere in the universe? So it's, it's not just biology, but sort of focusing on the, a, a broader context for life. These are the questions, the, the NASA vision. Astrobiology lies at the heart of the NASA vision. And the final question, are we alone? Um, these, are, these are really two key questions uh, for astrobiology and two things that are part of NASA's broader vision, uh, but that we in the astrobiology community, the astrobiology scientists um, and, you know, and our collaborators and such, really seek to answer, really seek to understand points out the fact that uh, these, these three questions, how did we get here, where are we going, are we alone, um, to understand these questions, you really need to combine information from the knowledge of space environments, places within, on our planet, but uh, outside of our planet, within our solar system, as well as knowledge of environments sort of outside of the solar system, with our knowledge of Earth organisms. As we all like to say, uh, life as we know it is an N of one. We know the life that originated on this planet. Um, as of yet, we have not uh, found life anywhere else. And so we have to take the example that we have as a way to understand life more broadly and think about the knowledge of Earth organisms, combining that with the knowledge of species environments as a way to understand these fundamental questions. And so, so digging a little bit deeper into that, astrobiology unites disciplines to study life in the universe. Uh, so at the top there, we have an image of sort of a, an early, so an early stellar system, uh, protoplanetary disk, there's a lot of dust, those sorts of things, um, questions about the origins and distribution of habitable planets and a chemistry of prebiotic environments. All of those are things that contribute to understanding astrobiology questions. 
next, we, of course, have the famous Stanley Miller, the spark discharge experiment that you probably learned about at some point um, in your background. The prebiotic evolution and origins of life is also something that feeds into understanding astrobiology questions. And then the evolution of biospheres and their biosignatures, the idea there is you have a sort of planet from planetesimals to a sort of rocky early thing to a uh, to magma oceans uh, to a sort of coalescing planet uh, with with impacts and all of those sorts of things all the way through to a to a sort of planet with life on it. The evolution of biospheres and their biosignatures and the attributes of living things, all of these studies, the attributes of living things, of course, is the part that's really truly the biology part. Uh, but, but all of these different things all feed together as a way to study the origins, evolution, and distribution of life. Those are the questions that we're trying to get at. The main way that we broke this down was into six major research areas that were covered in the strategy. So the first is identifying abiotic sources of organic compounds. That really has to do with space environments and planetesimals and meteorites and studying all of those sorts of things. The second chapter or the, the second topic uh, was about synthesis and function of macromolecules in the origin of life. This is the sort of spark discharge. Was it a hydrothermal event? Was it a, you know, warm little pond in the Darwin, uh, in the Darwin way of thinking about things? How do you go from sort of simple things to more to larger molecules and such? Um, and how does that contribute? How is that part of the origin of life? The third research area is on early life and increasing complexity. Early life, you know, thinking about what was the difference between protein and nucleic acids. We have sort of informational molecules in the nucleic acids. We have sort of molecules that do things and enzymes and such as the proteins. How did life systems sort of get all of those things online? How did they sort of start working in a way that could increase complexity, uh, could increase diversity, that sort of thing? The fourth topic is on coevolution of life and the physical environment. Uh, one of the fundamental ideas that we use when we think about habitable planets and we think about exploring habitable uh, worlds outside of our solar system or looking for habitable worlds outside of our solar system is this fundamental idea that life evolves on the planet and along with the planet. On this planet, the fact that we have abundant oxygen um, is the result of uh, billions of years of photosynthetic organisms pumping out oxygen in response to you know, incoming solar light and everything. And so how that evolution happens, what are the feedback loops that create things like snowball earth events and all of those sorts of things, how does that co-evolution happen and what does the resulting environment look like? The fifth section is identifying, exploring, and characterizing environments for habitability and biosignatures. This is really looking into different environments, different places on this planet that we can think of as analog environments for places off of this planet, either other places within our solar system, say Mars, uh, Europa, other, um, other icy moons and such, um, or even, you know, outside of our solar system. What are those environments like? What does life look like in those environments? How do we understand those environments as a way to understand the life that lives there. And then finally, the sixth chapter, the sixth section was on constructing habitable worlds. When you put all of this together, what is it? What is the global signature that you get from that? What are the, when you know, how does, how does the whole world uh, contribute to the living system on there? Um, and it's worth noting that the fifth and sixth research areas um, overlap with astrophysics um, and the astrophysics division and, and the work that we do there. So that's the six major research areas. So what is astrobiology's interest in lunar science? And uh, this one actually has three bullet points, and we can sort of just go straight through them. We're not looking for life on the moon. 
Uh, we're not looking to understand how Earth life might either live in or adapt to the moon's extreme conditions. What we're really looking for in lunar science is context for the early Earth. This question, of course, about what lunar measurements, what information from the moon uh, may be of importance, particular importance to astrobiology. The idea is by sampling more sites, particularly sites that are older than those that were sampled by uh, the Apollo astronauts, could give, and specifically the oldest and largest impact basin on the moon, could really give us a better sense of, of what the early impact history looked like um, in our sort of neighborhood. There was a further report, the NRC report in 2007, also, of course, prioritized uh, the science goal. The concept number one was the bombardment history of the inner solar system, test the cataclysm hypothesis for determining the spice spacing in time and the creation of lunar basins. One of the really important things uh, that, that we see about understanding the moon um, is understanding the sort of timeline of early history. Um, that, uh, that the impact frustration idea seems to be evolving within the astrobiology community from sort of thinking that the early impacts uh, extended for a period that created a period of time on Earth's history where the surface would be inhospitable uh, because of these sort of continuous impacts and moved more to this idea that impacts may provide um, energetics or environments for an origin of life that may be particularly interesting. So it's still important to understand the impact history, but, but may also give us some, some additional information about energetics and environments and such. So there's this idea, you know, sort of when, you know, what do we see as the timing for some of these major impacts that, that mid-share, of course, shows an impacts on the left, some simple molecules sort of in the middle, cells a little bit on the right, and then, you know, sort of a flowering plant life all the way on the right. And the idea is by understanding the timeline for some of these things, not only do we understand what the environments may have been like, but also some about the rates and such. How long does it take life to evolve? What does it look like as life evolves over time? And, and what are the sort of, uh, what are the timelines? A million years to go from, you know, sort of habitable environments to life on a planet um, is a very different timeline for evolution than 500 million years or, you know, less than 100 million years. And so trying to understand what that's like can be really important to understand life. So to wrap up, uh, we expect, we, the astrobiology community, uh, that the moon may be able to provide crucial context about the early history of our corner of the solar system. NASA's Lindsay Hayes. <laughs> The Artemis project to land humans on the moon is now well underway. The first landing is planned for the Artemis III mission. Biological science may not be on the minds of the billions of people watching the event on television, yet it will be present. Noah Petro is on the Artemis science definition team at the Goddard Spaceflight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Just some background, of course, Artemis and, and exploration of the, more, of the moon is both a joint of, of science and exploration. Our understanding of the moon is a cornerstone for our understanding of the solar system, um, as well as uh, exoplanets. We go to the moon to train, to learn how to explore planetary surfaces. Apollo told us that we can do that. The Artemis missions will put us in a position to be better prepared for future Martian exploration. And then, of course, particularly relevant is the exploration of Mars uh, safely by crew. We use the moon as a laboratory to understand planetary and biological processes. And of course, we're at, when we're at the moon, we use the infrastructure and what we have there to support long-term 
uh, sustainable exploration of the moon and beyond. We were asked to define the compelling, and, and this is the important word, executable science objectives for Artemis III. We were to assess the objectives of that mission and how we would investigate those science questions. And so this is sort of where part of the challenge, at least I found in, in terms of how we, we can do the first stage of lunar biologic studies um, within the confines of Artemis III. And this became the challenge. And in doing so, we came up with a prioritized list of, of science objectives for Artemis III. And, and again, really focusing mostly on the, on the surface aspects. What do we do during the time that crew is on the surface? All right, so let's talk a bit about Artemis III and how it's structured as of right now. And we know that things can change. Uh, the only constant in this business is change. But the guiding principles behind Artemis III were that is that we have a 60 to 70 kilogram allocation for tools and instruments to be used or deployed by astronauts on the surface. So again, this is the box that we have for instruments to be deployed on the surface. And this doesn't necessarily include all of the instruments that might be inside the spacecraft or mounted. But again, we're working in a fairly mass and volume limited space right now. Uh, we have a fairly small amount of sample to return, returning a minimum of 35 kilograms or a goal of 100 kilograms of scientific payloads, which includes samples back to the Earth. I just want to remind everyone that in Apollo mission, uh, the definition of what an Apollo mission would look like early on was that Apollo would return 30 kilograms. And of course, they eventually exceeded that. So when we see 35 kilograms, we, you know, that's a, a bottom minimum of sample. We, of course, anticipate and hope that we're able to get more sample back. One of the, the more challenging criteria for Artemis III as it pertains to how space biology experiments will be implemented is that the uh, minimum goal for duration on the surface is six and a half Earth days. And many of the uh, investigations and many of the goals that came out of some of those guide, guiding documents have long-term exposure to uh, microgravity environments. And so one of the challenges that I had and, and that we had putting together is how do we balance if we're on the moon for six and a half days, what can you get out of that? And so that's perhaps the challenge that I'm asking this community to come up with is, is how do we use that six and a half days to our advantage, knowing that the crew time is going to be valuable, knowing that they won't have infinite resources in terms of experiments and time and material they can bring back. So we have to find every kilogram, every gram of material, every opportunity for innovative experiments in that six and a half days as a foundation for future experiments to be done on longer-term Artemis missions. Of relevance, at least to the sample community, of course, is that there, there's a goal of at least two, potentially five EVAs of about six hours, and that uh, right now the, the, the walk-back capability of the um, XEVA suit is about two kilometers. And so these are the bounding boxes that we found ourselves placed in that, that sort of led to the generation of, of this report. And so of those goals, it is fairly obvious that we're interested in what, how humans respond to the uh, being in the lunar environment for even six and a half days. Again, some of these uh, investigations, some of these goals, we're looking for long-term investigations. I guess the question I have for, for you all is six and a half days enough to get something meaningful out of here. You get a baseline, you have the time in zero gravity on the way to the moon and on return, and of course, six and a half days or more on the surface. And so for each of these, these questions, it became a, a challenge to really say, well, will six and a half days return meaningful or significant results, especially if we're looking for long-term investigations, given all of the other criteria, the, the minimum, the, the small amount of, of perhaps experiments that we'll be able to bring to the surface, the small amount of material we can bring back. And so fitting all of these investigations that the entire report addresses is going to be a challenge, but it's certainly one I think we're all excited to, to meet.
Uh, we also had several other uh, goals as well as some investigations. This is where uh, we also started looking at electrodynamics, the interaction of the moon, crew, hardware with the space environment. And so you know, we started looking at long duration exposure of microbes and plants in the lunar environment. Uh, you know, I think it's incumbent on all of us as we start contemplating what experiments we want to propose and send to the moon on Artemis, uh, that we, we attempt to start on the right foot, if you will, with Artemis three and uh, what those investigations will look like. So in terms of defining what Artemis three is the, the first of, of hopefully many Artemis missions to the lunar surface, we, we looked at you know what samples will come back, what we want to actually do to build up capabilities on, on Artemis. So we identified multiple sample types. And this is where I got thinking about what, are, what can we do in terms of bringing back samples that become the feedstock of uh, terrestrial-based experiments. Um, you know, we, we have a number of, of, of sample types here, um, looking at regolith samples, looking at the very fine particulate dust that may get trapped in the cabin air filter, for instance, so that we have a, a better understanding of what that material is, looks like, um, the, the physical properties of that back uh, on the earth. Um, I think, you know, I was most excited in thinking about how Artemis III can contribute to space biology um, because it becomes a, a challenge. And I think we all look forward to challenges. You know, we may not get every experiment we want sent to the moon, but getting that material back to test in labs on the earth to develop more uh, sophisticated experiments to send in future missions or future robotic missions um, is exciting. And so I think as we start identifying the types of samples we want, I'll particularly, and I know we all will look to the space biology community to provide requests for what particular type of, of sample might want to come back from an Artemis III type mission. Um, are there measurements that we want to leave behind in an LSEP style experiment or, or, or something that is a witness plate that could be returned uh, on future missions, perhaps? Um, again, finding, finding little ways, unique ways to, to make the most out of every opportunity for science uh, on an Artemis III mission. Um, and of course, as, as what Artemis III looks like, uh, as our lander gets uh, identified, as we have a, a identified landing site, as the details of what this mission will look like, that will give us an opportunity to refine mission plans. Maybe we have more opportunity for, for experiments or samples to come back. We had a number of report recommendations going everything from starting with crew training down to selecting landing sites. Uh, one of the things that I will talk a little bit more in detail about is, is, is some of the instrumentation um, and what we might want to do with that. Just very briefly, though, you know, going from the importance of having crew that's trained to, to not only be field geologists, but also space biologists, perhaps, or uh, bringing in all of the, the different aspects of things that we're going to be asking them to do during their mission. We want them to, of course, deploy experiments. Hopefully those ex experiments can, again, be LSEP style, set to be operating for, for long duration. And of course, what are the infrastructure? What's the architecture that we need to support uh, this architecture? And so with that, um, I'll conclude. The Goddard Space Flight Center's Noah Petro. There will be challenges in doing space biology on the moon. Space biology program scientist at NASA, Shamila Bhattacharya, explains. Oh, uh, when she mentions CLIPS, she is speaking of NASA's Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program, under which companies will be contracted to deliver experiments to the moon. 
So NASA's goals of returning humans uh, to the moon in the 2024 and soon thereafter timeframe uh, is, you know, so the, the goals that NASA has is what really drives the research that we do. So the idea is that we not only get back to the surface of the moon, but we also have a sustained presence there. So uh, like we do in low Earth orbit on the International Space Station, the plan is that we will have uh, a, a sustained presence on the surface of the moon and then use the moon uh, as our stepping stone to pave the way for testing the science that we need um, as well as technologies that we need to prepare us for the long duration missions to Mars. What are some of the challenges that we can anticipate? So, as many of you know, in terms of the biological systems, you know, radiation, uh, deep space radiation, which can be highly damaging, this ionizing radiation, and I'll talk to you a little bit more about that presently. Uh, partial gravity. So the moon has one sixth gravitational force that we do on Earth. So for um, biological systems that have evolved over time on the Earth's surface at 1G, it may be a challenge uh, existing uh, in this reduced gravity environment. Uh, you know, there can be great thermal swings in temperature, almost a range of 300 Celsius between, you know, lunar day when you have the light uh, period and then the dark uh, period, the lunar night. There's altered day-night circadian cycles. So a lunar day is much longer, you know, 13 and a half Earth days uh, equivalent. Um, and then you have the dark cycle of an equivalent period. You can have um, uh, psychological stressors on astronauts and folks who, who get to the surface of the moon. And, and that sort of a, you know, the psychological stressor is also an important factor to consider uh, in biological systems. And, and then this idea that the combination of multiple stressors may in fact cause uh, increased or altered uh, phenotypic and physiological responses in the biological system. In terms of the logistics and operations, what do we need to do biological and other science experiments on the surface of the moon and what are the challenges therein. So you can imagine that the, the lunar environment is, is not very friendly to uh, Earth-based organisms in terms of, as, I, as we mentioned, you know, radiation, temperature, uh, light cycles, you know, gas composition, so on and so forth. And so one needs to provide the enclosed habitat that will support life in order to do the experiment. In addition, especially at the beginning, you're going to need autonomous systems because um, uh, there's not going to be, you know, at the beginning, there won't be, you know, many of these will be automated uh, payloads that go up on the CLIPS missions, for example. Um, and even later, you know, there will, uh, there will always be a lot of things, even when crews there for them to do. And so uh, the more automated the experiment can be, the easier it may be. We talked about, you know, the need to protect both electronics and uh, biology from radiation. Uh, there's the thermal environment uh, that would need to be controlled. Loading science into spacecraft. So those of you who are familiar with doing science on the space shuttle or on the International Space Station or using some of, you know, the, the rockets that we have um, online now to get us to the International Space Station, for example, um, or in low Earth orbit, we have kind of gotten spoiled that we can load our science, you know, sometimes 24 to 48 hours before launch, 
um, but at least, you know, a week before and so on. But for some of the payloads, especially in the early times on the Artemis missions, for example, some of the science payloads get loaded six to nine months in advance of doing the science. Uh, with time, you know, who knows, this, this, this uh, uh, load time may contract, but it's, it's another factor to consider when, when developing science. Um, and then the question, of course, of communication. So depending on your experiment and the data and the data you store and then telemeter down back to you, you know, for analysis in the lab um, and, uh, you know, and, and dealing with the, the, the data volumes and so on is another consideration.